You are listening to the Players' Lounge on the Pro 10 Radio Network, a production of Pro 10 Global Sports. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Players' Lounge presented by Pro 10 Global Sports and Pro 10 International. Today is Tuesday, May 20th. I am your host, Alex Ramirez, and my co-pilot today is ATP WPA journalist and writer of his blog, Tennis Acumen, Pete Zebron. Pete, good evening. How are you? Uh, Doing well, Alex. Good evening. Great to be back on the show. Absolutely, yes. We want to remind everybody that you can call the show at area code 347 637 You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro10 Radio, and you can check Pro10Radio.com for all the podcasts and future show information. We want to take this time to thank all of our new partners, uh, the Ball Magnet, SportsMouse at SportsMouse.net, the Tennis Congress, and Cruise Control Gear. We have started a campaign uh, to support the orphans at the Elora Academy in Africa that serves the less fortunate children across the slums in Kisumu City and Western Kenya. Please check ProtonRadio.com website and click on the Donate button. It's a great cause. If you want to know more about the many products and services featured here on the show, go ahead and tune in on Friday, May 30th at 9 a.m. Pacific. We will be uh, having representatives from the many different companies telling us about their products and services. Our goal here at Pro 10 Radio, the tennis industry, and the many people out there working to make your tennis experience a much better one. Pro 10 Radio is a nonprofit organization. We don't charge any of the companies that we support uh, to be on the air for their commercials. We only ask for a donation of any kind, and all donations help to pay for our expenses here at the network. And the majority of the donations uh, go to support the Pro 10 Foundation and Scholarship Fund. Uh, we will be doing a show in the near future about the foundation, our mission, and how Protein International and Protein Global Sports support this mission. We have a great show for you today. We will have a special guest a little bit later on the show. Uh, in the meantime, for now, uh, Pete, we got a lot of stuff going on, the ATP, WTA side. Why don't you catch us up with some of the, some of the hot topics? Well, indeed, uh, in addition to Roland Garros qualifying getting underway today on, on the men's side and the, and the ladies' qualifying draw coming out, we've got two men's tournaments, two women's tournaments happening, uh, probably one of the bigger ones in Nice, France, and um, a lot of Americans in action. It might be the only time uh, we'll see uh, American men playing on clay, uh, you know, maybe deep in a tournament. A couple things jump out at me, Alex, in Nice. John Isner obviously hasn't had a great spring on the clay. He's actually the number one seed in Nice. Got a bye in the first round. He's going to play fellow American Jack Sock, who came in through qualifying in the second round. And uh, interesting second round match, Isner-Jack Sock. Uh, A lot of Frenchmen are in that draw as well, as you might expect uh, in in France, uh, showing up for uh, tournaments, uh, you know, with respect to their home country. Another, uh, another interesting, um, at the very bottom of the draw, Alex, we've got Ernest Goulbis as the number two seed. He's going to play Martin Clezon, who's already had a, a win on clay earlier this year. And uh, Clezon came from a set down to beat Bernie Tomic of Australia, who's been in the, in the news for 
unfortunately infamous uh, activities on the court, uh, really not playing too well this year. But uh, Gulbis Klezon um, is the second round match there at the very bottom of the draw, and uh, Isner Sock up top. Sam Query, who got beaten in qualifying, Alex, uh, got a bit of a break in the sense of he took uh, Gil Monfils' spot uh, as a lucky loser, and uh, because Monfils had a very high seed, he's actually got a, a bye into the second round. He's going to play uh, a tough customer Spaniard, Alberto Montaña. So uh, even though Query lost in qualifying, he is into the second round by virtue of the absence of Gael Monfils. So uh, some pretty other, some big names as well in in Nice, as you might expect. Um, Paul Henry Matu, a wild card. He won his first round match. Joel Simone is seated number four. He got a bye into the second round as well. Alex, he's going to play uh, Dominic Team. Uh, a lot of people are talking about Team, the talented Austrian who's uh, played just about every qualifying uh, tournament, uh, plays in his way into the main draw in qualifying. Steve Johnson, uh, for, you know, an All-American at USC who won just about everything in college, actually was up a set on team in that first-round match. Uh, second set, team won in a tiebreaker, 7-5 in the breaker, and won the third over Johnson, 7-5. Great effort by Steve Johnson, and now we've got a very intriguing match of Dominic Team of Austria, as I mentioned, against Jill Simone into the second round. So uh, a lot going on in Nice. That's, uh, that's one of the tournaments that we have on the ATP site, and uh, we've got another one in, uh, in Dusseldorf as well. Now, we also had uh, Urban WTA. One of the things that stood out to me that came over on the news is Camilla Georgie had a good win today. She did. She, uh, she beat Lisa Cornet, and uh, that's a big win because that's in Cornet's home country of France. So uh, all credit to, to Camilla for getting revenge on, uh, on Cornet from not too long ago. That, the line score on that, Alex, was 6-4-1-6-6-3 in favor of Camilla Georgie. In fact, uh, Aliza Cornet, the, the number two seed, ranked 21st in the world. Uh, that's not the only upset that happened in Strasbourg today. Um, Sloan Stevens, who was the number one seed in the tournament, historically a very good clay court player, has gone deep in Roland Garros, uh, lost. She took a wild card into this tournament, Alex. Loses to Julia Gurgis of Germany. Quite a lopsided score there, 6-3, 6-2. So uh, Strasbourg has their top two seeds, Sloane Stevens and Elisa Cornet, knocked out on the very first day. So uh, that's a wide-open tournament. Uh, you know, we've got uh, a number of uh, players in that tournament who, who used to play at our, our 50 and 75K Challenger tournament in, uh, in Phoenix. Uh, Alex Madison Keys is into the second round. Allison Ritzke is into the second round. In fact, they're going to play each other in the second round. Um, We've got Monica Puig, who won her match today. She's in the second round. Uh, Mirjana Lucic-Baroni in the second round, who actually has a Wimbledon doubles title with Martina Hingis. Christina McHale won. She's another Phoenix alumni into the second round. Ayla Tomiljanovic of Croatia into the second round. So this is almost a reunion of the uh, Phoenix 50 and 75K with uh, – uh, a boatload of players doing very well in Strasbourg, France. So we've got Camilla Georgi, Ila Tomjanovic, Christina McHale is three, Mirjana Lucic four, Monica Puig five, Allison Risky six, Madison Keys seven, Sloan Stevens eight. So eight players 
in a uh, in a nice tournament, warming up, getting ready for for Roland Garros. And indeed, they are. You know, I remember uh, a all those players here at the Phoenix 75. We really did it. We were kind of spoiled to see that caliber of tennis here. And if I remember correctly, it was towards the end of the year, right? In like uh, October, November. Is that when it was? It was in it was in uh, the early mid part of November, and obviously, uh, you know, we live here in Arizona, Alex. This is about the only place in the world where you can have an outdoor tournament uh, in in November with uh, you know shorter days. And you know, I, I I still remember one of the first days of qualifying. We had 78 degrees and and blue sky and sunshine in that tournament. Um, you know, in the early mid part of November. So yes, uh, too bad uh, that tournament lasted four years. First couple of years, it was a 50, and uh, actually the first, the the winner of that both years, the first two years, Alex was uh, Avara Lepchenko. And uh, interesting story about her in that tournament: she won the last 30 games of the tournament. So she won the third set of her quarterfinal, six love, won her semifinal, six love, six love, and won her final, six love, six love. Quite an outstanding accomplishment. The first year of the tournament for Vavara Lepchenko, 30 consecutive games to win the Phoenix $50,000 Goldwater Classic Challenger. You know, I remember that, and and it made a little bit of news here, but not as much as you think it would have made. I mean, we have the, uh, more news, anything going on with golf here in the Valley, as big as we are, but we get a 75K uh, with quality players, and we, and we barely make make maybe the tail end of the, of the newscast on the sports section. It was too bad. I mean, it was a, it was a high quality event, you know, it was played at the Phoenix country club and a lot of the players, uh, I would go to the players party every year and, and uh, almost every player would say, you know, this is it. All the challengers aren't as nice as this one. Well, you know, this is uh, this is played at the Phoenix country club outside of downtown Phoenix, beautiful golf course, beautiful uh, clubhouse and, uh, and nice courts really, Really good, uh, great management by Sarah and Dan Stabline, who, uh, you know, they moved up to Southern California, and unfortunately the club um, elected not to continue that tournament. They put a lot of nice time, energy, and effort in building it from a 50K tournament to a 75. I mean, you know, Mary Carrillo was there. The golfer Tom Lehman came out to check it out and, and give, out, uh, give out the trophies one year. So we really, uh, you know, some nice, Nice, uh, nice names came through that. Melanie Udan played one year. Uh, I mentioned Sloan Stevens played a couple of years, and so uh, uh, we had uh, we had some really solid players that that came through uh, in that tournament. And yes, it was the tail end of the year, mid-November, and um, really the big drawing card. Uh, in addition, to some nice prize money. Seventy-five k is a, is a pretty big challenger tournament, Alex. But you know, some of the gals were trying to accumulate those last few points that they could uh, in order to get direct entry into the Australian Open field or possibly even into the qualifying draw of the Australian Open. Uh, some points were able to be had here in Phoenix, and as a result, uh, they were, there were some pretty strong draws that we enjoyed here. We did. That was a great tournament to have. Now, we still have the 25K over in Surprise, and that brings in some some decent tennis. It's it's a lot further for people to drive to watch some tennis. I wish uh, people would make the drive sometimes because there are some decent matches out there. It's just tough when it's a lower level tournament to draw the, the the crowd needed to make it you know a nicer tournament. But what I've seen some good matches out there. Have you? 
Well, uh, yeah, I, I've been out to surprise for the for the PowerShare series, Jim Jim Courier's uh, Legends Tournament. I I meant to go out uh, this year for the either the semis or finals. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it out there. But uh, Tamara Pacek of Austria, who uh, you know Larry Passos, the uh, Guga Querton f- uh, former coach, has worked with in the past. She actually, uh, I believe she she had 11 match points that she squandered in that title match and did not win that match. Uh, but, um, you know, a bigger name, uh, someone who really hasn't been on the radar too much lately, but um, uh, got to a U.S. Open semifinal, Alex, um, uh, and that was Yanina um, Wickmeyer uh, won that tournament uh, three or four years ago. In fact, let's not forget uh, Caroline Wozniacki. That was uh, Wozniacki's opponent in the U.S. Open semifinals when she got to the final. Uh, she beat Yanina Wickmeyer. So a couple of uh, up-and-coming players played uh, in New York, but uh, Wickmeyer had won that tournament in surprise, probably one of the bigger names uh, uh, to win, you know, that tournament in surprise. Yes, and locally, let's not forget, actually across the country right now, they have what they call uh, the U.S. Open qualifying, and uh, what that is, the tournament played, I believe, in every section in the United States. Players are able to play in, they get to pick one section to play it in. If you win that in the singles, you go to a national playoff, and if you win the national playoff, you get a you get a wild card into the qualifying of the singles at the U.S. Open. Now, the doubles in the mix, they only have mixed doubles. In the mixed doubles, you actually get an entry into the main draw because there is no mixed doubles qualifying. And so, it's a good opportunity for people to go out there and and try their luck. And I know they're going it's going on across the country right now. Have you ever been out to see some of those matches? I have actually. Uh, I went last year, and um, the competition was held at uh, Mountain View Park, right on Via Linda in Scottsdale. Uh, very, very nice uh, facility, nice courts. They've won, uh, you know, a USTA Court of the Year. Um, one of those banners they have there. It's on. Um, it's on Via Linda between, uh, uh, you know, close close to Shea uh, in that area. Uh, very nice, uh, very nice venue. Good quality of play, and, and nice to see you know uh, people playing for for something on the line. Uh, obviously, it's a tournament, and you could uh, you get out of that section as you mentioned. You're able to then you know advance and ultimately uh, hopefully get a, a wild card into the uh, into the U.S. Open qualifying. Yeah. Yes, we had a local a couple of local players, Brian Batterstone from California, and Nicole Malikar actually won. Uh, the section here, and they won the the national qualifying and played first round at the U.S. Open. Great experience for, for Nikki Melikar up and coming on the WTA. Uh, has a little bit of higher doubles ranking right now than a singles ranking. It's like about 150 in doubles and about 450 in singles, I believe. But it's a great opportunity for these players that, that want to crack at, that, uh, at the U.S. Open to be able to get in there, even if it's just mixed doubles. Yeah, Nicole, by the way, interesting story about her. The very first year of the Goldwater Classic when it was a $50,000 tournament, Alex, Nicole actually won the wild card tournament to get a direct entry into into the main draw the very first year of the Goldwater. Oh, wow, yeah. You know, they had some really good opportunities. The Goldwater tournament did a great job of giving players opportunities to get into the draw, and uh, hopefully uh, somebody will bring back the... Um, a tournament of that caliber. In the southwest, we still have a 75K in Albuquerque, and I think that's in the fall sometime. Um, 
but uh, the only 75K left here in the southwest. We do have a 25K coming up in El Paso here in June, and then we just had the 25K in Surprise at Pass. But uh, some good tennis here in, in the southwest, uh, which we have some uh, men's tournaments. Hopefully somebody will bring a men's tournament on, but uh, we get some good quality tennis out here. It, it's kind of hard to believe that, uh, you know, with our climate, uh, very favorable, obviously not coming up in the summer, but uh, the majority of the months when the rest of the country isn't able to host outdoor tennis, uh, that, that that we don't have anything. Uh, this would be an ideal prelude, if you will, even though it might be a, a challenger into, into Indian Wells, Alex. Uh, guys can get match play, very comparable uh, conditions uh, with, with altitude and, and uh and the temperatures as well. It would just make a lot of sense for for us to get uh, a men's and or women's tournament uh, right up uh, right before Indian Wells. That would be uh, that would be ideal. Absolutely, yes. And you know, we're coming up on a break. We're still uh, tracking down Tim Mayotte for tonight's show, waiting for him to call in. In the meantime, we'll take a small break. Be right back and talk. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the ITF tournament and the prize money not controversy, but issue that people are having about uh, trying to work their way up in the rankings. So we'll be right back and talk about that in a few minutes. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke Summer sound effects on you? Yes. Cool. You okay with this? And this? And what about this? Gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. What is this bill for $562? Let me call these people. Thanks for calling Big Tobacco. How can I be of assistance? Hi, I was going through my mail and saw this bill saying I owe $562 for smoking-related expenses. That's correct, ma'am. Yeah, what's the deal with this bill? You see, smokers miss more work and retire earlier, which costs Nevadans $903 million in lost productivity per year. Also, smokers get sick with diseases like lung cancer and emphysema, costing another $565 million in medical expenses. So, when you add it up and divide by a total number of Nevadans, it comes out to $562 per Nevada household. Okay, but I don't smoke. Oh, whether you smoke or not, every Nevadan pays the bill. You know what? I'm not paying this bill. Actually, you already did. And you'll be making the same payment again next year. Well, thank you for your call. Hello? Is smoking worth it? Learn more at SmokeFreeVegas.com. That's SmokeFreeVegas.com. Or for free help quitting smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Made possible by funding from the Department of Health and Human Services. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. To celebrate the not-normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for Hello? this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit miniusa.com slash info for MPG details. Hi, this is John Embry, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. 
Catch me live on Wednesday, May 28th at 1 o'clock Pacific. Hello. All right, and we are back. Welcome back to the Players Lounge, brought to you by Pro 10 International and Pro 10 Global Sports. Um, we actually have uh, our guest is on the air, and so let me just do a quick introduction. I know I kind of gave it away, and it was on the schedule, but uh, this is how uh, Serpent Volley learned to play the game on um, the public courts of Forest Park in his hometown of Springfield, Massachusetts. He played tennis for Stanford University and won the NCAA singles title in 1981. He won his first professional singles title in 1985 at the Lipton International Players Championships, and he won a silver medal at the 1988 Olympics. He was a semifinalist at Wimbledon and the Australian Open and reached the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open. He won 12 singles titles, one doubles title, reached a career-high singles ranking of number seven in the world, retired in 1992, and now has the Tim Mayotte Hurst Tennis Academy. Tim Mayotte, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Uh, my apologies. I, I got stuck in some late-night uh, New York City traffic, so so sorry I didn't get on earlier. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Thanks for having. Thanks for being here. So you're, you're uh, sound somewhere? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't call from the road, but uh, I was coming back from our, our facility in Queens, New York, and uh, they just do all these crazy repairs at night, and so I got stuck, and, and uh, so my apologies again. No worries. Glad to have you on. Uh, with me today, Tim, so you know, uh, we have our, our journalist, uh, Pete Zebron's on the air with us. Hi, Pete. Hi, good evening, and Tim. So, yes, uh, we're, we're glad you were able to make it on. Uh, uh, glad traffic wasn't uh, too horrible, but, uh, yeah, glad, we're, we're really happy you're on. All right, Tim, so we're going to get started here. And uh, we want to start with you as a, as a young boy. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your tennis uh, growing up, how you got started with tennis? Well, I'm the youngest of eight children, and so in a lot of ways very lucky because, I, uh, as I tell some of the kids in our academy, I had a virtually a built-in academy in my family. Uh, the uh, Four of my older siblings were quite good players, and we had uh, some public courts right across the the uh, street from us. And so basically we would go over and chasing my older brothers and sisters and trying to uh, get a game in with my father, who was, was a decent player. And so it was just around tennis uh, since the youngest age. I, I can't remember a time when I couldn't play tennis. Maybe started at three or four. And... Uh, so it's just involved with uh, with sports, but particularly tennis from from the earliest age. And I think having older brothers and sisters to chase after also gave me some extra uh, desire and focus. And, and uh, so that's really how it started as a younger kid. That's great. That's uh, fantastic for you to be able to uh, to match up not only with with your dad Tim, but uh, also also brothers and sisters. But what was it? Uh, was it just the steady diet of tennis that made you? prefer to play tennis as opposed to, you mentioned some other sports as opposed to other sports, just tennis overall? Actually, my first love was baseball. And I think uh, as I work with the kids, especially the younger kids that we have, 8, 9, 10, 11, 
I really encourage them to play other sports because it, you know tennis is is tough because it's so lonely. And uh, I know that it was much easier for me to compete as a youngster in a team sport uh, than it was uh, to play tennis, which which was really very very difficult for me in the in the younger stages of my uh, you know my childhood. So I played baseball, I played basketball, I played ice hockey, I played uh, you know whatever sport we could make up, and played some tennis. And then, uh, but but there was a nice mix. And what I did get was good sound fundamentals when I was younger, uh, and I think that that was very helpful to get some good stroke production in place. And then as I got older, around 13, then I would really put the training into high gear, and uh, so. Uh, but I do, I do think that the benefit of playing other sports is is dramatic, and I am wary about some of our uh, young tennis players playing only tennis. Right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. And uh, yeah, I was wondering. You mentioned the age of thirteen. You really started training. Uh, with respect to that, Tim, what um, were there any junior tournaments or titles that that really stick out in your mind that you had a special memory of uh, during your junior career? Uh, it was really much later when things started to click for me. I, I was uh, the number one player in New England as a 10 and under. And then, uh, like I said before, the the trials of competing at that age and, and starting to feel pressured uh, to perform at such a young age, I actually stepped back from the sport for a while and played just a couple times a week. And then really the the big breakthrough started to come at uh, 15, 16, which, uh, which is quite late, or at least uh, used to be kind of considered quite late. Now it, it seems with players developing later, it's actually the, the trajectory of my career is a little bit similar maybe to guys like Query and, and Isner. And um, so I was about to... So you went through your, your junior career at uh, your decision to go to college or term professionally. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, it was, you know, I think it's difficult for people to understand how how different things were back then. But, um, you know, for instance, on my recruiting trip, I went to Stanford and I saw John McEnroe play Elliot Telcher at Stanford versus UCLA match. And at that point, McEnroe was 11 in the world and Telcher was something like 36 in the world. So you had two of the best players in the wow. world playing in, playing in a college match, uh, which happened to be my recruiting trip to Stanford. So it was uh, a little bit surreal. Obviously, you would never get that situation now, but you know, McEnroe had gotten to the semifinals at Wimbledon, and Telcher was, I think, a quarterfinals at the Open. So, but there was a, there was still at that point a real emphasis on going to college a little bit. I think the only player who had really broken the mold was Connors, who uh, had gone to, for one year then quit and turned. But I, I do have to say that it, I, I thought about it a little bit because I started to have some success at the challenger level my last year as a junior, uh, won some matches, and so I, I really felt that I could go out and play the tour on a tour at 18, but uh, really felt that it was good to, to spend a couple of years at college, which I did for three years at Stanford. Um, but it was clear to me at 17 that I could have gone out and played. But and again, it's interesting how things have shifted so dramatically because 
shortly after you know, I went into college, everyone started to turn pro. That's when the Volunteers Academy got going and, and Agassiz and those guys were turning professional right out of high school. But right. now the, the, pen, the pendulum's really swung back the other way where... Uh, Hi, this is Dick Gould. You're listening to the Coach's Corner. Where the players are, are needing to go to college for two, three years to get some uh, physical fitness. They really trained physically. And uh, so that that was the path that I took, and it really worked out well because I was really ready physically, mentally to hit the tour when uh, after I spent three years at Stanford. Yeah, right. thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, you, you won the 1981 singles tennis uh, tennis tournament there, uh, tournament singles title, Tim. And right now, three of the top four Americans, John Isner, Bradley Klon, Steve Johnson, all played four years uh, of college tennis, and. I cover Cincy every year, and I, I asked John Isner specifically a couple of years ago, you know, what? Uh, tell me about your time at uh, University of Georgia. And he said, you know, I, if I didn't have that time, I wouldn't be here today. And, and you mentioned, uh, obviously, it's a little bit different, but uh, you, you spent three years at Stanford. But, uh, you know, did you feel possibly after year one, after year two, or what really after year three made you decide that that was the time and maybe not so after two or, or not electing to spend your fourth year there as well? It was a dramatic moment, although it had been building because I'd been having some success again at the at the uh, challenger level in the summer. But then I got a wild card into the San Francisco tournament, which was the San Jose tournament last year, and I I uh, went out and beat Jimmy Connors, who was at that point two or three in the world, and uh, <clears throat> that was in September of my junior year, and I remember coming up. Back after that tournament, I got to the quarterfinals, and I said to Dick Gould, who was the coach, obviously, at Stanford, and I said, you know, this is, this will be my last year, um, because obviously at that point, I recognized that I was doing well enough to beat the number three guy in the world that it was time for me to turn pro. And then, fortunately, I was able to fulfill the the dream of uh, winning the NC2A, so then I really felt justified in my decision. And, uh, Tim, we have a question from Facebook. Darlene Hayes writes in, and she wants to know what it was like seven years ago, your experience when you coached the Boston Lobsters in WTT tennis. Well, hello to Darlene. Thanks for calling in. As you know, Darlene was a uh, great part of tennis back in the 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s with uh, running a uh, big marketing program at, at Reebok. But uh, that was a real treat. Uh, to to coach and that was uh, you know it was, I was interesting I was a little uh, a little bit uh, suspicious about team tennis when I had gone into it but then it turned out I was really swept up in the the fact of playing uh, you know and and obviously coaching and being a part of a team and kind of gets me back to that earlier point about the loneliness of playing as a junior and. Uh, to be a part of a team is just a remarkable, remarkable thing in tennis. And whether it was for me Davis Cup, which was certainly the most exciting part of of uh, my career, playing the Olympics, playing at Stanford uh, as a team, and then coaching at team tennis, uh, really, uh, Billie Jean is really on to something important there, which is that's larger than yourself. And uh, so I really enjoyed. Coaching the coaching the lobsters and being a part of the team and 
uh, that kind of unique scoring system. But team tennis is something fantastic. And I think, uh, from what I understand, they're trying to do something in India uh, where they're going to bring in some of the best players in the world and do a, do a Southeast and Asian team tennis event. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. That'll be great. And it's, it's funny that, you know, Darlene Hayes, we didn't know you knew her, but she just kind of wrote in on Facebook and said, hey, ask him about this. So that's kind of good that you knew her. Oh, yeah. No, Darlene was a, was a real fixture in the tennis community for, for many, many years. Fantastic. So, Tim, uh, shifting gears a little bit, you played doubles with your brother Chris for a bit, and you won the tournament in, in uh, San Juan in 81. Uh, that must have been a very nice experience for you. Yeah, it was really exciting, but also it was, it was complicating because actually Chris and I played against each other in singles that that tournament. Uh, oh wow! Once I won, so that was a very intense experience. And we have in my program we have three sets of twins, one set of triplets, other siblings who are competing against each other, and. Playing against the sibling is very, very complicated and, and interesting experience. So, uh, obviously, we never became anything like the like the Bryan brothers or the Gullicksons or the Jensens, who all had storied careers as doubles teams. But it was a great thing for Chris and I to be able to, again, be part of a team where we're working towards the same goal as opposed to competing. And I think that that uh, was something that was very, very fortunate, exciting moment. Actually, it was the only doubles tournament that I won. Chris had many, many titles, I think five or six, and was a better doubles player than I was, but that was a, that was a great moment. And that was really part of one of the moments in which, uh, and I, that was my junior year in college, where I really rec- started to recognize that I was ready to turn professional. So, but it is, it is uh, I just want to speak to all the siblings who've had to compete against each other and really admire what they've done. Obviously, the Williams sisters spent a lot of mystery about how they've handled their matches against each other in such high-profile moments. So I just have a lot of empathy for them and and how they've tried to uh, negotiate their way through those complicated situations. Yes. And Tim, uh, we talked about your your doubles title with your brother Chris in San Juan '81. Going to the next year, you were playing uh, some very solid tennis coming into Wimbledon in '82. Had very good result at Queens, and uh, you made it all the way to the semis in Wimbledon at '80 in '82. If you could take us through that uh, that run, uh, your memories of, of your time in Wimbledon 1982, please. It had been prepped a little bit earlier the year before, in which I got to the to the quarterfinals. I was just outside of, out of Stanford for a couple months, and so that was really the first big breakthrough for me was 81 Wimbledon, in which I got to the quarters. There was a, a I got on the map in a way that was, besides just winning the matches, I think was interesting and put a kind of character in my uh, persona for, because 81, as you may remember, was the year that both McEnroe and Connors, but particularly McEnroe, went so crazy. That's the year he said, you cannot be serious. It was the year he said, you're the pits of the earth, which has had 
a remarkable, a remarkable <laughs> longevity as you think about one line that sticks with a player. I think you cannot be see. I actually saw a Nike T-shirt today that had in large letters, "You cannot be serious." So, and Jimmy was no choir boy that year either. So as I got to the qu- the quarterfinals that year, and I was an American, that's when I got dubbed this name, Gentleman Tim, which I didn't necessarily think was so uh, so fitting, but but it was uh, it did stick. And I had a great run that year at Wimbledon, and that really prepared me for that run in '82 where I got to the semifinals uh, a match later. So that was uh, obviously one of the great moments in in my career to get to the semifinals and to really think I remember staying up late at night uh, the night before the quarterfinals and the semifinals and just um, dealing with the reality of could I actually win Wimbledon it was uh, it was just a uh, incredible incredible feeling I couldn't sleep at all before those two matches before the quarterfinals and the semifinal matches and I and those days yeah, it was it was just it was just so pumped up. And in those days, there was no obviously no email and texting like that. You got telegrams with each successive match that I won. <clears throat> the box that uh, that held all the telegrams. I got hundreds and hundreds of telegrams from all over the world. And so there was just a tremendous building excitement. So it was uh, I just always felt very at home at Wimbledon. Felt and still feel to this day that the center court at Wimbledon was just the most amazing place to play tennis. It's hard to describe to somebody. So as I worked my way through to the semis, it was, you know, again, it was just an amazing experience and, and uh, something I'll never forget, although obviously I didn't play the uh, – or not obviously, but, but I got beat up pretty badly by McEnroe in the semifinals. But that year actually had some challenges too. I, I it's hard to believe now, but I played. I started my second round match, on the, and I didn't finish that match until Monday of the second week. So when they talk oh. about building building a roof at Wimbledon, they they should have done it a long time ago because uh, we had a couple of tremendously bad. Wimbledon's in which the the weather got way behind uh, or forced the tournament to get way behind. And so I played on Monday, finished the second round. They tried to make me go back out on that same day and play another match, which I refused to do. And so we played every single day, three out of five sets, from Monday all the way through to Saturday when we when I was eliminated from the tournament. Wow. Now that's a run. And, you know, this is a good segue to our next question. You also made the quarterfinals of Wimbledon in 81 uh, in your first appearance at the All-In Club. Uh, you reached the quarters in 83, 86, 88, and 89 as well. Historically, your deepest run at the majors. Was grass just your favorite surface? Yeah, grass was, was definitely my favorite surface. And, and what really also indoors on what they used to use then a lot was called Supreme Court, which is very low-bouncing fast, so I had both my best success on the grass and indoors on the Supreme Court. So there really wasn't any comparison as far as my results on um, the other surfaces on a slow hard court or on clay certainly was my worst. But I just loved the 
the quick points, the, the low bounds, the fast. What I could use, what was definitely my best stroke was uh, forehand and backhand volleys in my overheads. So as I watch Wimbledon now and see how much they've changed the court surface itself, it, uh, it, I think it's a little bit of a shame because Wimbledon now really is played almost like the U.S. Open, which is played almost like the French. Uh, there was okay. much more much more variety in surfaces back then. And uh, so the grass now plays very similar to a fast hard court or a medium-speed hard court, whereas back in the, uh, the days in which I played, the bounce was much lower and the court really skid through. Uh, I play at... I'm a, member at a beautiful club in Boston called Longwood. And they brought the groundskeeper from Wimbledon over there. They, they have uh, traditional grass at Longwood, the 22 beautiful grass courts. But they brought the groundskeeper over and brought one of the... They brought over a court that is the same as Wimbledon Center Court as far as the type of grass. And it really is like playing on a hard court. It's just a, it's a, a very firm, short surface that, that the ball bounces up and, and uh, so the game has changed so much. So I, I would say that my grass, the type of grass I played on favored my game, the type of grass they're playing at now, Wimbledon, wouldn't necessarily be such a great court for me. It's amazing how things have changed over the years. Thank you so much for sharing that, Tim. Um, we're going to be right back. We're coming up on a break. When we come back, we'll have more with Tim Mayock. Don't go anywhere. Cruise control gear looks good, lay better. Cruise control gear looks good, lay better, yeah. You'll love the feel, the style and the fit. Cruise control gear, live for it. Active gear for beginners to grow. Look like a winner with cruise control. Shop online at cruisecontrolgear.com or call 877 Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for Snuggle Muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200-mile-per-hour cordless leaf blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, Snuggle Muffin. What are you doing, Snuggle... Snuggle... Wait, come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. Paula Sala is a real Geico customer, not an actor. So to help tell her story, we hired that announcer guy from the movies. When the storm hit, both our cars were totally underwater. In a world where both of our cars were totally underwater. We thought it would take forever to get some help. But a new wind was about to blow. With Geico, we had our check in two days. Payback. This time, it's for real. Geico. Real service, real savings. Hi, this is Dick Gould. You're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch us live on Wednesday, May 21st at 1 p.m. Pacific.
And we are back. Welcome back to the Players Lounge on the Pro 10 Radio Network. We are talking with Tim Mayotte. Uh, again, you can call the show at area code 347-637-1197, and you can reach us on Twitter at Pro 10 Radio. And, Tim, uh, we finished off the last segment uh, talking about Wimbledon and your success there. And keeping with the Wimbledon theme, 1985, fourth round, you, uh, you played Boris Becker, who had won Queens that year, and you led Boris two sets to one, lost to fourth set breaker. He went on to win that match as well as Wimbledon as a 17-year-old and also defended his title the very next year. What are your recollections of uh, 17-year-old Boris Becker when you played him in the fourth round of 85? We had had a, a, a couple run-ins actually earlier that year. I, he, uh, I had remembered Boris actually as a 15-year-old, believe it or not. And uh, <clears throat> I was playing a tournament in Germany a year and a half before that. And Boris, obviously, at that point was was uh, very, very young. And I was just in the stands watching, and he was scheduled to play Sandy Mayer, who at that point was 10 in the world. And this red-headed, big, burly kid walked out on the court. And what really struck me, I had never seen Boris before, what really struck me is how just unflappable he was here against one of the best players in the world. Boris won the first set and ultimately lost in three sets to Sandy, but it was clear that he had had a just a, a, a total confidence in his ability, even at that young age. You could see that certain cockiness, that belief in his athleticism presence on the court that was an obvious part of who he was through his through his whole career. That year in 85, I played him in the second round at the Australian Open. It might have been the first round, I can't remember, and, and that was my first match against him, and he beat me in four sets. I had been a semifinals at the Australian, and Australian was still played on grass at that point, so I was very accomplished on that surface, and right from the get-go, you could see that this kid was something special. I actually played a pretty good match, losing to him in four sets, but his serve was so powerful, his his returns were, were smack on, he, he moved pretty well for a big kid. And then we played later that year in what was the first Miami tournament, which was at that point played in Delray Beach. I beat him in four sets and went on to win uh, that title there. So I had seen Boris quite a bit and knew that uh, it could be a really special match that, that year at Wimbledon. Uh, yes. It was, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh-oh. So uh, we played on one of the outside courts that had a small stadium, maybe 3,000 people. But right from the start, there was a very special feeling on the court that this match was going to be very intense. And I won the first two sets, as you said. And actually, at I believe it was in the tiebreaker, at one all, he rolled, one all, in the fourth set breaker, he rolled his, his ankle and was down on the ground and really looked like he was going to be was going to be unable to continue. There was so many people around the court that they had called the trainer, but the trainer couldn't get through the crowd. It took him 20 minutes to get through the crowd because there were maybe 25 or 30 people deep. In those days, I don't think they controlled the crowds as well at Wimbledon. 
at one point Boris had was was holding himself up by the net and he and he reached his hand out to shake my hand to say that the match was over, that it couldn't continue. And then Jan Tyriak at that point, who had just started being uh, Becker's agent and was coaching him to a certain extent at that point, yelled out, said, no, don't do that. And then shortly after that, the trainer showed up, spent about 10 minutes taping up Boris's ankle. He came out playing really strong and, and beat me in the fourth set breaker and then came out and won the fifth set, and then obviously went on to, to win the tournament. So it was kind of an interesting unfolding of events there as uh, as Boris made that dramatic you know, uh, arrival on the scene. So it was quite, quite an interesting match. Yeah, v- thanks for sharing all that. In fact, uh, you know, by today's standards, obviously, a uh, you know, they've got the the trainers within uh, a walkie-talkie and, and would get right through. But, you know, if that were present day, Tim, uh, you know, given the nature uh, of his injury, and, yeah, he had maybe 20-plus minutes to to sort of get better and then having Tyriac on his back, uh, do you think if uh, just, you know, the radical, regular medical timeout time that he would have uh, that he would have pulled ripcord at that point in time? It's, it's so hard to tell because Boris was <clears throat> such a great or is such a great warrior. So that I think he he would have figured out some way to continue. Whether he would have been able to to win at that point is another question. Certainly, the extra time helped him, but Boris has proved again and again that he it wasn't like it was a fluke. Obviously, he he played so many great Wimbledon's after that, and U.S. Open, Australian Open, and so he uh, he I think would have found some way to to win at that point, or at least to continue the match. Yes. Uh, thanks for that, Tim. Thank you very much. Um, you know, moving on, it uh, seemed like when we were kind of looking into your career, uh looks like your nemesis was Yvonne Lendor. You weren't able to meet him in, in 17 attempts. Can you tell us a little bit about those matchups and what uh, what weren't you able, able to solve with those with that matchup with Yvonne? I knew you'd bring up a bad subject. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, very, very painful <laughs> matches against Yvonne, and we had so many close ones that it was, uh, I used to have nightmares about losing to them time and time again, because particularly in the early going, there were a number of very close matches, and certainly in really big situations. The thing about Yvonne was, true to his personality, there was never a time that I can remember where he didn't show up and bring a bring 100%. Some of the other players, they seem to slip in and out, and obviously the great ones were able to rise to the occasion at the big matches. But Lendl just seemed always prepared. That, that he would show up. He would do a great warm-up. Obviously, he was in great physical shape, and he just always seemed to be ready to play 100%. That as well as the fact that the way our games matched up was that his, his game style was such that he could he had legend well really at that point it was legendary passing shots especially off the forehand side but he greatly improved his backhand as things went on and so my attacking style did not match up well against the way he hit those passing shots particularly running passing shots lobs and then obviously it became it got into my head at a certain point he had really one of the most crushing moments that I, I had in my career was in 
1986, I had won Queens, which was, I think, the, maybe the greatest run that I had ever had in tournament tennis, where I beat Becker, Edberg, and Connors back-to-back-to-back, who were maybe three of the best grass court players in the world at that point. And so went into Wimbledon off of the grass at Queens, feeling like this was the time I could win Wimbledon. Moves through the tournament very easily, playing as well as I've ever played into the quarterfinals, and then ultimately lost to Lendl 9-7 in the fifth set. And I think that was the moment that uh, really broke my confidence against Lendl. I never really thought at that point that, that when a match got close, I, that I could believe in myself to come through and win win against him. We had had a a good five setter in 1982 as well at the U.S. Open, in which I lost uh, six four seven five in the fifth set. So at that point, I really stopped stopped believing that I could play and really beat this guy, especially when uh, he was always in there fighting other even other top players at some point with roll over if the occasion wasn't big, but, but, but Yvonne was always 100%. And uh, it's obviously been really exciting to watch him guide Murray through what uh, I'm sure was the most stressful situation that, that I can imagine for a player to go through, for Andy Murray to have to deal with the pressure of his, of his country in all those years. And that was so exciting to watch Yvonne guide Murray through the what must have been tremendous mo- uh, mental, emotional pressure to, to come to his first uh, Wimbledon title. Yes. Yes. And, and of course we had to bring that one up, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things. Um, no, I'm glad, you brought, I'm glad you brought it up. It's, it's, uh, that's the way it goes. He was, the, he was the one guy I never beat. And I actually remember when Gilbert myself and Aaron Crickstein, all top 10 players, were 0-52 against Lindell. And Gilbert at one point said, I'd give a million dollars to beat Yvonne. <laughs> so, <laughs> the kind of frustration that he caused, especially Gilbert, who obviously was uh, coined the word winning ugly, but could never figure out to, uh, to win in any way ugly or pretty against Lindell. Or pretty. <laughs> Jim, Jim on, a, on a happier note, from middle of 86 to middle of 88, you won eight consecutive finals. And in that run, you won 19 of the 25 sets played in the process in the title matches. That was quite a nice groove for you when you were able to play on Sunday during those years. What, what really worked for you when, when, once you got to the final for that, for that period of time? But I just got to the point where I, the pressure was off. I felt like if I got to the semifinals and – I think actually my semifinal conversion rate was really pretty good at that point. Uh, up till then, until I won my first title in 85, I lost a lot of finals. I think it was five or six finals as I got to and finally broke through in 85 when I won the Lipton. And then I just started to feel that by the time I got to the semifinals, I was more relaxed. I felt that my game was gelling, and and so things were, to me, it just seemed like it was all cream. If you get to the semis or the finals, you've done a good job, and then I was just super, super confident as I got into the later stages. 
I think if you were to talk to a lot of players, juniors, college players, pros, they would tell you that the first round in a tournament is the most difficult. At least it was for me. Because if I could get into the tournament, get more match play on that particular surface, get the use to my surroundings, then I felt that my confidence would build with each and every round as they went through the tournament. And if I got... I would get most nervous in those first rounds, certainly the first round, maybe the second a little bit, but as I got comfortable in my surroundings, then it, then everything would flow. So I, I did have a I did have a nice run there, and so anybody who struggles and they feel like they can't get over a certain hump, if you can just do it once, if you can work and get yourself in that situation, then then it becomes much much easier. At least it was for me as I lost in all those finals running up to that to that eighty six to that really eighty seven eighty eight and eighty nine run. Yeah, so you find that that groove. That's really good to know. You find that groove and you settle into the tournament, and then you start <clears throat> with that confidence. Um, switching gears a little bit, you won the silver medal at the nineteen eighty eight Olympics in Seoul. Share your memories about your run to the final, as well as your recollections about being an Olympian. Like I said before, being on a team, feeling like I was playing for something larger than myself made tennis even more exciting, more meaningful. So being invited to that Olympics uh, just in itself, we were the first pros ever to play, the first openly pro athletes, not just tennis players, first openly pro athletes to ever play in the Olympics. So it was really a big deal. All the other sports at that point were amateurism, I guess, at some point. I, actually, Jan Tyriak said that uh, that we were the... Because actually, I didn't get any money to play. And that he said we were the only true amateurs at, at the Olympics in 88. Because <laughs> everybody else was getting paid and we weren't. Tyriak has always knows a lot more about money than just about anybody else. So that was, it was just such a thrill, the idea of uh, tennis joining the Olympics again. Then the other thing that really was striking was my parents never watched me play ever at any tournament since I was 11 years old. They all they always got too nervous. So the, but the moment we found out that I was going to go to the Olympics, my mother said, well, I'm going to go and watch. <laughs> so obviously that, that meant so much to me because it was such a big event that even she could get over her nervousness and, and come out and watch and be a part of the thing. My dad still couldn't deal with the anxiety, actually. he One time when I won the Lipton tournament, he came to the finals. He was going to watch it. He couldn't deal with it. So then he went to a local bar and watched it on television. So he still couldn't deal with his nerves. But my mom decided to come. So I remember clearly walking into the stadium in Seoul, 80,000, 90,000 people, and walking around the track with all the other athletes and looking up in the stands and seeing her. That was a, just a remarkable moment for me to, to share that with a family member. And then the other, besides playing well, the other biggest thrill was just meeting the other athletes particularly the American athletes, but all the other athletes. Being in the village is just the feeling of 
this is something that's way beyond tennis itself. It, it dwarfed Wimbledon. It dwarfed these uh, the other events that obviously tennis is so international, so wonderful in that way. But to see all these other athletes from all over the world so accomplished and yet also in a way so open, that uh, that was just a very, very special moment. And then getting to this, getting to the finals was, was obviously... Uh, just uh, sugar coating on top of everything else. But it's something I'll never forget. And it's been nice to watch the way that it's really grown into being an event that all the players shoot for. So when I started, when I played it that first year, it was a little bit in the ba- hanging in the balance. People weren't sure whether the players would adopt this as a big tournament. And clearly over time, it's become a, a major stop and really the players see it as a as a something that they gear their whole year towards. Thanks for sharing. Those are really special memories, especially being able to take out your mom and out of all those people in the stands. It must be special to be look up to you able to see her like that. Thanks yeah, so it, was, it was really yeah. something special. Absolutely. And we're coming up on a break. So uh, we'll be right back with Tim Ant. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke summer sound effects on you? Yeah. Cool. You okay with this? And this? And what about this? Gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. What is this bill for $562? Let me call these people. Thanks for calling Big Tobacco. How can I be of assistance? Hi, I was going through my mail and saw this bill saying I owe $562 for smoking-related expenses. That's correct, ma'am. Yeah, what's the deal with this bill? You see, smokers miss more work and retire earlier, which costs Nevadans $903 million in lost productivity per year. Also, smokers get sick with diseases like lung cancer and emphysema, costing another $565 million in medical expenses. So, when you add it up and divide by a total number of Nevadans, it comes out to $562 per Nevada household. Okay, but I don't smoke. Well, whether you smoke or not, every Nevadan pays the bill. You know what? I'm not paying this bill. Actually, you already did. And you'll be making the same payment again next year. Well, thank you for your call. Hello? Is smoking worth it? Learn more at SmokeFreeVegas.com. That's SmokeFreeVegas.com. Or for free help quitting smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Made possible by funding from the Department of Health and Human Services. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit MiniUSA.com slash info for MPG details. Hi, this is John Embry, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. 
Catch me live on Wednesday, May 28th at 1 o'clock Pacific. And we're back. Welcome back to the Players' Lounge, presented by Protein Global Sports and Protein International. Tim May out on the show, and we've covered a lot in the first two segments, heading into the home stretch. Uh, back with Tim Mayot. Hey, guys. Welcome back, Tim. Yeah, welcome back. And uh, in 1985, you reached the World Championship Tennis Final. You had some solid wins over Andres Gomez, Mats Wielander, and Joachim Nystrom. Actually only dropped one set in those... Uh, Best of five matches, one set to Nystrom. Uh, Wendell was waiting for you in the final for the title. Uh, your recollections of that, and pretty interesting that, that um, you know, best of five tournament was played in April in Dallas. Uh, how, how did it come about that the World Championship Tennis uh, Tournament was played in April, best of five, and uh, just your overall recollections of your time there? So if anybody's interested in the history of tennis, they, they should do a little bit of research on WCT, which World Championship Tennis, which at that point, and it was just starting to pass its prime as one of the great titles in the world at that point. Uh, Lamar Hunt, who was the, owned the Kansas City Chiefs, became very interested in pro tennis early back in the 1970s, early 70s, and he started, which was one of the first very successful pro tours at that point, and then had a year-end tournament that was played in Dallas, which really put, in a lot of ways, tennis on the map, particularly tennis as far as what it was shown on TV. He put a big prize money, and there was a worldwide tour that ended at Dallas, and actually 1972 is one of the biggest moments in tennis in which Rod Laver was playing Ken Rosewall in the finals, which was broadcast on CBS. I remember there was only three networks back then, and the match was so compelling and deep into the fifth set that they actually held up the national news with Dan Rather so that they could watch the, so that they could stay tuned into the fifth set of that match it was really one of the great matches. And actually, that was a big kickstart to the tennis boom because millions and millions of people, maybe 30, 40 million people, had tuned in to watch the nightly news, and all of a sudden they got treated to this great fifth-set match between uh, two of the great champions of all time, and that started to put tennis on the map. So World Championship Tennis really grew out of that experience, and so there was actually two tours at one time. If anybody goes back and looks at the history books, there was the ATP Tour, but running next to it was also the WCT tour. And so those tours had actually run simultaneously up until, I believe, 1987, something like that. And I had done well at some of these tournaments and so was able to qualify for the finals, had that great run, and then uh, ultimately lost in, in the, the Lendl. But... It was, it was also much more standard back then the, to play three out of five set matches. The first year that I won the Miami tournament, it, it was all the matches were played three out of five sets. 
because they were really trying to create another Grand Slam. And one of the things that was most you know, a signature of a, of a great tournament was to play three out of five sets. <clears throat> so that was the run that I had there. And then obviously I, I played super well. Beating Zelander was such a great moment for me because the Mass is such a great champion. And I think actually one of the, I don't know what you guys think about this, but one of the most underrated champions that I can think of, he won seven slams. He was number one in the world in singles, obviously, in doubles. Won a bunch of, led, led Sweden to a bunch of Davis Cup titles and really does not get the recognition that he deserves. So to beat him was a very exciting run. And uh, it was sad to see that WCTA, WCT went, um, went away a couple of years after that, but that was a real highlight in my career. Yes, thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, on that note, was there uh, one win in your career that made a big difference that stands out in your mind but didn't really get talked about, didn't really make the news, but in your mind it really made a big difference? There were a couple. One was the first Davis Cup match that I played, which was we the U.S. played Mexico in Mexico City in 1985, and that, I think, was the most intense tennis experience that I ever had as far as the range of emotions that I experienced. And for anybody who's ever craved to be a part of an amazing tennis experience, they should go to the U.S. playing Davis Cup away from home certainly in, in some more, what I would say, were hostile countries, and what certainly Mexico was at that was one of those. But there was death threats against us as we went into Mexico. There was actually real talk that we shouldn't play the match because the death threats were so real in Mexico City. We had to bring all the food in from the United States because there was fear that we might get poisoned. We were assigned bodyguards who carried loaded and loaded machine guns with them at all times. So to play in those kind of conditions and to persevere, which I was able to, I, I actually double faulted 27 times. And wow. that, five set, that last five-set match that, that clinched the title, we were playing in a bull ring. You, you can't make this stuff up. It's just, it's, <laughs> as they think back right now, it's... it's it was crazy, but so there's 15,000 people. They had put a, a red clay court in the middle of a bull ring, an actual bull ring. They had a mariachi band that was playing. Every time I would miss the first serve, the mariachi band would kick up. <laughs> there's people hanging over the edges of the bull ring, which the walls are maybe about six or seven feet tall, and they were screaming very bad names at me, calling me gringo, go home gringo. During, during right in the middle of points, it was just quite astonishing. The cheating was extraordinary because the, the lines people were local, certainly, and there was a lot of pressure on them. So it was an atmosphere unlike anything that I, I remember. Nothing really came close to that. The, the actual, the small American contingent had four or five bodyguards, again, with machine guns sitting around them. So it was, uh, it took me literally about a month before I started to wind down and relax after that 
that particular match. Actually, we, we beat Mexico. And then as we left the arena, we had a caravan of two or three vans that were driving down the, the highway away from the site. It was like being in a, in a Sylvester Stallone movie, but we're driving down, and then these raucous, very angry Mexican folks in two or three vans pulled up alongside of us and started to cut us off a little bit. Pointer, our bodyguards jumped out of then They slid the door open and made very visible their machine guns to these to these uh, menacing vans and cut those people off and, and as we proceeded back to the hotel. So winning in that kind of situation, playing in that kind of situation, there, there's really no comparison whatsoever as far as the, the intensity, the, the feeling that you could actually go into real danger, not just the perceived danger of being in a match that you want to win. So that was That's really incredible. Far the, the most uh, extraordinary experience. And I think if you were to talk to, for instance, Stan Smith, uh, who I hope you would get on the show at some point, he can share his, his experience of playing in Romania, which was very similar. I remember speaking with B.J. Armitrage, who played for India, and he had very similar experiences when playing in the old Soviet Union, where they had flown overnight from from Bombay. The Russians forced them to stay in the airplane 16, 18 hours on the runway as they just said, well, there's no, there's no hotel ready for you or we won't let you off the plane. Uh, there was fear of poisoning. So maybe it's gotten a little bit less intense, but certainly many, many top players would, would tell you stories in which in Davis Cup matches they felt that uh, an intensity of competition that, that's unlike anything else that, that happens in tennis. That's wonderful, Tim. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's, uh, I, I agree. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Davis Cup competition, no matter who's playing. It's, it's wonderful to see... Uh, some of the unheralded players uh, for, for, you know, playing in, in different draws and whatnot, getting a chance to represent their nation. But uh, your, your experience in Mexico City, thank you very much for elaborating on that. And uh, and when you, when the, you think about it, I just, just one other thing, I mean, there's, what, 127 countries have Davis Cup teams. And so it just shows how remarkably international our sport is and how these, these wonderful tennis matches at whatever level are being played all over the world. Indeed, and uh, you know it's nice for for countries to have home ties that uh, you know they might not get a chance to see professional tennis, uh, you know, because obviously they're they're in you know other parts of the world where it isn't all that strong. But Davis Cup uh, makes that possible, so that that's very nice to see. And um, just sticking a little closer to home, I, I want to get your thoughts on the fact that uh, it's been more than a decade since the United States uh, men have won a major. Andy Roddick last uh, brought home a trophy at the 2003 U.S. Open. Obviously, we know it's an international game, and uh, some countries are, are doing very, very well, uh, in individual players, not so the Americans. Your thought on uh, maybe what, uh, what, what is ailing us here and, and what might be a, a, you know, a, a solution that's going to take some time? I've been very vocal about my opinions about what's going on here and and to have actually ruffled a few feathers in my my analysis of the situation 
But I do strongly believe that uh, part of the problem is that the that the game has changed dramatically in the last 15 years and that our coaches have to learn how to coach our players in a, in a way that's much more sophisticated regarding what works today as opposed to what worked 15 years ago. So actually I just put together a proposal that I'm going to send to John Embry from USPTA. I sent this to Patrick McEnroe, who I recently had discussions with about it. And uh, tomorrow, actually, the tennis, uh, one of the senior editors from Tennis Magazine, Steve Tignor, is going to visit our program in which I'm going to talk about the possibility, which I think is essential, is creating a U.S. tennis university in which we train uh, a group of top pros top teaching pros who understand how to develop players and the kind of methods that, or, or to develop the kind of skills that are necessary. So it, in my thinking, if you were to look at the game, let's say 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you really had two different games. You had fast court tennis and you had clay court tennis. And the clay courters did well at the French and they did well on slow surfaces and the Americans did extremely well on the fast surfaces, which, if you look at where were a number of the major titles, including Wimbledon, U.S. Open, and the Australian, were all played on faster surfaces. So the game has changed so radically. The courts have been slowing down dramatically, and the particularly the strings have changed the amount of rotation and topspin that you can get on the ball. And so a style of play has has taken hold in the last 15 years that Americans were never good at and still aren't good at, which is basically the ability to not only play offensive tennis, which is something we've always been good at, but to also play defensive and neutralizing tennis. And unless our Americans learn how to do both, then we're not going to be able to create champions. So in this analysis that I've done, if you look at the top Americans over the last 15 years, there's been one side or another, meaning forehand or backhand, where then technically weak on. That was obviously the case with Roddick, who managed only to win one title. I mean, obviously he was a great player, but he had a very suspect backhand. If you look at so many of the players, uh, Blake, and Query and Isner to a certain extent, certainly Jack Sock and Ryan Harrison, uh, all these guys really struggle on one side or the other, particularly the backhand side. And so they can't stay in these long rallies and neutralize their opponents until they can use their big weapons, which is obviously their forehands. And the Europeans and the South Americans have had a culture of doing that for the last 30 years, really going back to the age of Bork. And so unless we are able to teach our players to work the points but to understand the technique of how to do that, and by technique I mean the technique of the strokes but also the technique of the movements, sophisticated movements, then we're not going to make any great players. And uh, I've had many discussions, he did actually, he did discussions with Jose Garris on this as, as player development head at the USTA 
and uh, really felt that we didn't have the sophistication as far as the technical uh, development of our players, and um, and I still believe that to be the case. Right, right. And just well, I, follow I, up with that. We you know we have a I have a I coach as well, and and I see the fact that some of these players are being developed just by their pure talents, and they think that that talent is going to get them to that next level and and win. But if they don't get trained properly with their strokes and the strokes break down, like you said that's when they start missing and they don't know how to get out of trouble and how to get back to the point and actually turn it around and win the point. Yeah, that's what the that's what the Europeans and the and the clay quarters, South Americans have learned to do so successfully. Now obviously there's a certain cultural element to it, this idea of what the, the Spanish have really done so well, which is this idea of suffering through a point, good shot selection, being willing to stay in these points longer. But at the same point, there's definitely a technical element to it. And again, I, at least in my thinking, it's not okay to. It's not sophisticated enough to look at it just in terms of the shape of the swing. It's how the shape of the swing relates to the movement, which relates back to the shape of the swing. Because yeah. what's paramount now is is not only the quality of the shot you're hitting, but how that shot translates into the speed and efficiency of the recovery. Because whereas when I was playing at two, three, four, five shot rallies, now you have to be able to repeat those exchanges six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. And if the ball quality is not good or the efficiency of the movement's not good, which are completely interrelated, then a player loses over time. So that's in my mind why you saw so many matches in which Americans Roddick is the obvious example, but Isner, for instance, as he plays these long five-set matches at the slams, or uh, our players lose so many close three, four, five-set matches because over time the, the Europeans can wear them down because what they do is just that much more efficient. The ball quality is a little bit better, the strength of movement. And uh, unless we understand that very sophisticated, interconnected, element, then our players are going to continue to struggle. Right. T Tim, thank you for sharing. And, and I, I'd like to personally thank you for putting that uh, proposal together, a very well thought out and, and uh, you know, the points, some of the points that you've made here and shared with us. I, I, uh, I really hope you get some traction with, uh, with the powers that be. And that said, um, if you could talk a little bit about uh, the Mayotte Hearst Tennis Academy, and I, I've been on your site and you've got four key components with respect to the philosophy of your academy, if you can talk about that a little bit. I met my partner, Lee Hurst, when we were hired by Patrick McEnroe and Jose to run, actually to open and run the National Tennis Center player development site, which is, which is still running in Queens. <clears throat> I was there for about a year and a half, got it off the ground, started running it, and met Lee there, who I consider to be uh, when you talk about those those kind of geniuses that are out there that nobody really knows about, the um, is a British guy who who has been involved in tennis for 25 years and developed very sophisticated. I, I keep using that word tomorrow with too much. I wish I could come up with a different one, but really well thought out technical analysis. And so Lee and I had uh, decided that we wanted to leave the USDA and start our own academy. So. 
we had thought through clearly about what, what matters the most to us, and it's those four components that we talk about, which obviously for everybody starts from the mental, emotional. That's the, that's the most important thing. If In our thinking, if you can motivate and create a really fun but disciplined environment for the kids to thrive in, then that's the, that's the basis of creating it really great tennis players. I think too often where we take the element of play out of it and Wayne Bryan, who's obviously a, a great example of a parent and a, a great tennis coach, is, has really taught so beautifully the importance of having fun. And so we pride ourselves on trying to create a culture of mental emotional atmosphere that really makes the kids want to improve but also to have the most fun. Then on top of that, we layer really great technical advice and teaching so that from the youngest ages, the kids learn how to strike the ball and move properly. That sets the stage for tactics. I think so often people talk about tactics in a way of seeing them separate from, from technique, which is really crazy because you can't play properly as far as a tactical way of, or you can't look at tactics without understanding what it is that technically you can do. So if you're if you have a a weakness in one particular area, please say a slice backhand, which as we know so many young Americans don't have or a comfort at net, then you're asking a player to do something that they're not comfortable to do. So we we right. equip our kids with all the great, all the technical needs that they have with the thinking that by 14, 15, they're starting to identify their game style and their tactics more clearly based around the kind of technical strengths and weaknesses that they have. And then fourth is always a component, which is the, the physical, the conditioning element, which we were just talking about today and how important that is to as you have developed these skills from an earlier age, for instance, the, the, the solid technical grounding, the good hard work ethic, and then you start to really push things physically as players get, get older and stronger and start to get more focused on speed and endurance and agility and things of that sort. So it's those four elements that we see as the cornerstone of as building great players, which is really a big part of, of what we want to do. We're really committed to creating a generation of, of great American players. And on top of that, to also get this idea of a tennis university off the ground. So those are our two goals, which uh, I would so I'd say education of the coaches is maybe the fifth pillar of that of that thinking. Right. Yeah, I mean, this, they hold such a big part of the players' development, absolutely. So... That is, that is a great to see that, that you've developed those, uh, those components and philosophy that uh, I feel personally when I travel around with juniors that a lot of academies don't have. They're just feeding balls, and the juniors are hitting balls, but there's no structure behind what they're learning and how they're learning it. So it's nice to hear that you guys have a good philosophy like that and, and good to hear that, uh, that you've been doing it. That's great. Yeah, it's going, it's going really well, and, and it's as you know, Alex, it's, it's tremendously time-consuming, and the progress is slow and inch by inch. But unless you build that really great foundation 
from the ground up from the from the young group it it becomes very very difficult to develop champions so i yes. i i say this with all due respect to to some other programs but i, I go around and see players who are even who are pretty far along in their juniors uh, as far as their world rankings at 15 16 and yet i see real technical deficiencies in their game that will hold them back unless they are able to work through these these problems. And the time to address those is when they're 12, 11, 12, 13, 14, because it's much more difficult to change the way a player hits the ball and moves when they're 17, 18, 19. And it's just a a shame to... uh, to see a number of our juniors, at least from where I, I look, and see them at the, at those ages as they go to our national tournament, 16, 17, I just hope that these technical things are being addressed earlier as opposed to later. And yet, when you look at how our players have performed, actually our juniors do well through 15, 16, 17, and then they start to drop off. In my mind, that's because the... the the sophisticated the teaching. Right. Right. Thank you so much for that. And uh, absolutely. Um, We're coming up to the end of the show. I want to end with one quick question uh, with the segue into what we were just talking about. What what advice do you have for parents and juniors considering maybe a professional career or maybe the decision of, of going to college tennis? Well, first of all, I just want to give a shout-out to all the parents who, in my experience, sacrifice so much for their kids to be playing in tennis. Sometimes we hear these put-downs of parents and there's too much this or too much that. And when I travel around or in, in my academy, I'm just astounded by the sacrifices that so many parents make to have their kids play tennis dealing with so many emotional and obviously financial sacrifices that they have to they have to deal with to keep their kids in this great sport. So I have so much admiration for them and I do hope that one of the things that the USTA does and I think they frankly did a crummy job in the last four or five years but I think are are all changing, which is parent education. It's really the, one of the big missing pieces, and I think the parents are out there flailing around, and that USTA or or us, the coaches, need to do a better job at, at communicating with the parents about how they see their kids and what path they think their kids should be on and how the parent could help and how the parent needs to also at times let go. So I, I think communicating to parents is, is very important. I would say that the beauty of this, the current situation is that you can play really, really top-level tennis, go to college, and still have a serious crack at having a great tennis career. That's the, the, the downside to playing pro tennis now is that it takes much longer to make it to the top 100 of the ATP or the WTA Tour, but the, the upside is that you can go to a good college, get a really good education, 
and still have a good crack at becoming a top player. Obviously, it was great that you brought up what John Isner said. So this brings us back to building the fundamentals. If you could get your kid really trained in the fundamentals and, and in a good place mentally, emotionally, as they go into college, there's no reason that they can't come out the other side and, and play on the tour. I think so much there's a rush now to get kids a, a really good ranking or a really good ITF ranking. And there's so much traveling around to get points, whether it's USGA points or, or ITF points, where I think that we should have more emphasis put on skill building, on uh, developing good practice habits, on playing. Uh, I bring this up to parents a lot, and they seem such a strange idea, but that our 14, 15, 16-year-old kids should be playing local adult tournaments. I don't don't see why they're traveling all over the country or the world to play ITFs when there's plenty of good competition locally. There sure is. There's such a a rush up the junior rankings when obviously you have to have some competition as a, as a junior to get into a, a decent college, but to think for the long term. So and that can mean playing a really high-level competitive tennis and getting a really good education. That's not easy. It takes a tremendously focused kid to be able to do academics and athletics, but it's not impossible, and I think that's the best pathway for kids. Because Absolutely. If, if there are any parents listening, it's I had a great career. I was in the top ten for three years. Made a lot of money, but at 31, you're you're at the other end, and you better have an education just to really think about what your what you want your life to become and how to go forward. So it's a uh, it's tough, but that's to me is the best pathway forward. Yes, you know. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, we will be uh, promoting the show for sure for parents to listen to. You know, we've had Frank Giampaolo on the show the Tennis Parents Bible author, uh, about educating the parents, and that was a, a really good show. And then, so you know, we've had also a lot of uh, players that went to Stanford. We had Jeff Saltenstein, Jeff Tarango, right. David Wheaton, uh, this, this, just this month, and tomorrow we're finishing it off with, with Dick Gould. Wow. Yeah. Such, a, such a legend, and obviously Dick will have so many insights and uh, he's really just been through the whole spectrum. And I know that uh, I actually pushed with uh, with Stan Smith, who's the president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, to get Dick into the Tennis Hall of Fame because I think he's one of the one of the great coaches and has had an impact on so many top players. And so uh, I would really encourage, obviously, the parents or anybody who's interested in tennis to tune in and talk to Dick, who is just uh, one of the legends of our sport. Tim, I want to thank you so much. I know it's so late in New York for taking the time to be with us and, and sharing all of your, your insight and information. It's helpful to a lot of people. Uh, thank you again so much for being with us tonight. Well, it's a really great honor to be on the show, and, and thank you. And you guys just keep uh, spreading the word and getting all that good information out there. We will thank sure you, Tim. come back anytime. Thank you. Have a good night. Absolutely. That was Tim Maya joining us on the Pro 10 Radio Network. Uh, coming up tomorrow afternoon, like we said, we have Dick Gould. 
followed by Dennis Ralston on Thursday and Rick Macy on Friday. Next week, we kick off the show with Bobby Blair, author of Hiding Inside the Baseline. In the same show, we will be talking to Jan Ozu from FitSet.com. And in the second part of our doubleheader that night, you will hear Passing Shots with Pete Zebron, and guest hosting will be Jan Ozu. Uh, the CEO, Executive Director of the USPTA, John Embry, will be with us on Wednesday afternoon, and we'll finish off the week with Dr. Ann Smith uh, on Thursday night. This has been another edition of Players Lounge on the Pro 10 Radio Network. For Tim Mayotte and Pete Zebron, this is Alex Ramirez signing off. Good night, and God bless. Oh, <laughs> folks.